Now, just through Advent a few weeks ago, we heard about the angelic choir that filled the night sky above Bethlehem on that first Christmas Eve, and they proclaimed, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth and goodwill among all people. Since that night, over 2,000 years ago, countless God-fearers have looked around the world and wondered, did the angels get it all wrong? The list of conflicts and injustices and pain and suffering around the globe is long. Had the angels missed the choir rehearsal and they were now singing off the wrong sheet music? If Christmas is a celebration of God's gift of peace on earth through Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, then what's gone wrong? We have lived our entire lives in the shadow of war, haven't we? Some of us have parents or grandparents who remember or even fought in World War I. A few of us may have been alive during World War II. Then there's the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Gulf War, Afghanistan, and Desert Storm. They've all impacted us. And right now, we are witnessing the ravages of at least 27 different civil, religious, ethnic, and drug wars around the world. We are witnessing up close and personal the one-year-old war in the Ukraine. And we've watched at least 42,295 people die. We've seen at least 54,132 people suffer non-fatal injuries. 15,000 people are missing. Approximately 14 million people have been displaced. 140,000 buildings destroyed, over $350 billion in property damage. And that's just one of the 27. Where is the peace on earth that the angels proclaimed that first Christmas Eve? The language of warfare and combat is even woven through the pages of the Bible. Stories about war and conflict and conquest litter both the Old and New Testament. And in the church age, followers of Jesus have sung hymns with military themes, Onward Christian Soldiers, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Today's sermon text in Ephesians chapter 6 is perhaps the most renowned warfare metaphor in the entire New Testament. What are we supposed to think and do? I want to suggest this morning that the Apostle Paul's instruction to the Ephesian church in chapter 6, verse 10 10 to 11, where he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power by putting on all of God's armor is a call to be strong and courageous. That's the title of the sermon series that Pastor Matthew has been sharing about over the last two weeks. And I'd like to begin by just inviting you to open up your Bible app or your actual Bible, if you have one of those, or to follow the text along on the screen. We're going to be reading from Paul's probably most second popular or well-known or influential epistle, the book of Romans being the first, Ephesians being the second, the sixth chapter 
verses 10 to 15. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Now, the Apostle Paul is using metaphoric language, figures of speech, with which the listeners would have been accustomed, and he's urging his audience to resist the strategies of our very real enemy, the personal devil. Did you listen to the language laced through these six verses? Be strong. Stand firm. Be able to resist. Stand your ground. Stay alert. Be persistent. God's will is that we as his children are strong and courageous. Now, last week, Pastor Matthew helped us understand how the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness reveal our true identity. That is, we have one new nature, reborn, created in the image of God. And then as the text continues, today we're urged with these words, for shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. The New International Version translates it this way, stand firm with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Some of you might be more familiar with the phrasing of the New King James, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So the good news of great joy that the angels announced is the gospel of peace. God desires peace on earth, goodwill among all people. But how can this happen? Realistically, how can this happen? Do we try to legislate morality and peacefulness through the passage of laws? Do we coerce our enemies, that is, those who believe and practice life differently than we do, or those who by their governmental regimes, be they socialistic or communistic or dictatorship, that are inhumane and devalue people, or those who are antagonistic to the Christian faith, do we somehow coerce them to our worldview? Do we even go so far as to take up arms and wage war against them? I would suggest, no, that God's kingdom offers a different way forward towards peace. Now, through his letters, the Apostle Paul illustrates over and over how God's grace comes to shape us once we embrace the belt of truth and are wearing the breastplate of righteousness. 
God's grace begins to shape us and then make peace possible. You see, friends, before we knew Jesus, we were an enemy of God. It sounds harsh, but it's really true. Whether we were aware of it or not, there was a deep chasm of separation and angst between us and God. Here's how the Colossians chapter 1 described, uh, describes our, our former condition. You were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. We could spin it another way. We could say, when the shades are pulled and the lights are dim and we're honest with ourselves, we would have to have admitted to being self-centered, sinful people whose lives were marked by evil thoughts and actions, bondage, rebellion against God, living in guilt and shame. That's what Colossians 1 is telling us. We were separated from God. But Jesus changed all of that. That's why it's good news. He came, as the angels announced on that first Christmas Eve, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, proclaimed and demonstrated the kingdom of God, God's love and mercy and truth and power and peace. Then he died on the cross, was buried in the tomb for three days, and rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And his death and resurrection now provide the way for all people everywhere, every nation, every culture, every age, to be reconciled to God, to be made right, forgiven of their sin, for the old sinful nature to die and a new redeemed nature to emerge. Paul wrote it this way to the church at Rome in chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to make us right with God. And then Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, because of what we've just heard, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. We have peace with God. This powerful truth is, is, is uh, timeless and eternal. Anyone who believes in Jesus' death and resurrection is right with God. And at that very moment, we receive peace with God. This is to say that God's grace brings a, a loving and welcoming and personal and intimate relationship with the living God. All that separation and angst between us and God, poof, it's gone. doesn't exist anymore. We are no longer his enemy. We are his friend. And this means that followers of Jesus in every age, in every culture, of every race and ethnic stripe, we now have a new identity as God's daughters, as his sons, and we are forgiven and made right. We're free from living in fear. We don't have to worry that God is poised at the top of the celestial stairs just looking for us to mess up so he can squish us like a bug. No, we don't need to worry that God's mad at us. 
that he's disappointed at us, that, that we're always letting him down, that he's counting our sins against us, or that he's preparing to judge us or discipline us like a mean, angry parent. We don't have to strive to gain his approval. We're approved through Christ. We can live in peace with God. That's good news, friends. And the enemy wants to obscure that news every time he has opportunity. We don't need to strive to gain God's approval. We're already accepted in his son. And we can be confident and settled that we're pleasing to our father. And so God's grace brings peace with God. Sets us free from anxiety and worry and uncertainty and fear. I've shared before, but let me tell you my story. I was raised by very devout Christian parents and um, uh, went faithfully to church since I was a pastor's kid. But the church of which I uh, was a part taught that God was mad at me for all of my teenage sin and debauchery. And then I went to the University of Illinois in 1974, and I began to experience uh, this uh, internal conflict I didn't understand what it was at the time, but later I would know and recognize it as the conviction, awareness and conviction of my sinful lifestyle fueled by the Holy Spirit. I was caught between trying to get an education on one hand that took a lot of time and energy and resources and maintaining a sinful social life, which demanded time and energy and resources too. And I was, I was stuck in the middle and miserably guilty, influenced by my Christian roommate named Bob, who was just weird, uh, but he was a faithful guy, and one thing that bugged the tar out of me is that Bob was at peace with, with God and man. would sit around and sing these little love songs to Jesus on his guitar. It drove me crazy. I didn't like his taste in music, but more than anything, I was jealous of the peace that Bob had. And so as a 17-year-old freshman on the night of October 9th, 29th, 1974, 10.30 p.m. in room 413 Babcock Hall, Pennsylvania Avenue Residence Halls on the University of Illinois campus. I slipped out of my dorm room bed long after Bob had fallen asleep, and I knelt down and prayed, perhaps sincerely, for the very first time in my life. And my prayer went something like this, as I recall, Lord Jesus, if you're real, would you please come into my life? At that very moment, I was transformed as the gospel of peace touched my life, and I felt the weight of a thousand worlds just lift off my life. I later understood that I was born again, that the old sinful nature of Ben Hare died, and I, I was made new in one new righteous nature that was now at peace with God. And like many of you, I experienced this supernatural peace. It blew my mind. He delivered me from my bondage, my rebellion, my guilt, my shame, and my sin. Many of you could share a very similar life-changing story. Peace with God. But nevertheless, despite our powerful testimonies, all of us who identify as followers of Jesus, having entered God's kingdom through repentance and faith, having experienced putting on the belt of truth, the truth of the gospel, the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness around our heart, a heart that was sinful and is now new, created in the image of God and now having peace with God, we know that not everything changes, does it? 
No. Now, a lot of things do change. A lot of things change. But many things do not change. As today's text in Ephesians 6 indicates, we still have an enemy, a very real enemy, a personal devil. Now, many in the church today don't even acknowledge the reality of Satan, our adversary, a real personal devil. But historically, Orthodox Christians have always believed in a very real, very personal devil. And the text that we just read indicates that we have an enemy and there is cosmic spiritual warfare all around us. Now, let me hasten to add that these verses in Ephesians 6 point to a reality that demands more than a 30-minute sermon on a Sunday morning to unpack. Evil rulers, spiritual wickedness, cosmic powers that, that are at war. But they all do point to this overarching biblical teaching that our troubles are real and they persist after we get saved. And they come from three sources. And you know this, but let me remind you. First, our trouble comes from a broken, fallen world that is cursed by sin injustice and oppression and evil governmental structures and racism and religious persecution, natural disaster and nature gone amok, difficult people and challenging circumstances. These are all evidences of a broken world that is suffering under the weight of the curse of sin that came when Adam and Eve fell in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And Paul, Paul shows us in Romans 8 that the natural order is yearning for the day when the sons of, and daughters of God will be manifest to the world and creation will be free from its curse. It's groaning under the weight of the curse of sin. So the first source of trouble is just life. Because we live in a world that's cursed by sin. Second is the devil. We can suffer the direct attack of our enemy. Now, in general, the Bible points to the devil as the ultimate source of disease and death and dying, oppression, evil, pain, and injustice. If you drilled everything down to the root, the devil is the cause. And specifically, he... he causes demonization, that finds expression in addiction and oppression and habits and bondage of all kinds. The devil can influence people to say and do hurtful, evil things. The devil can influence circumstances through accident, calamity, misfortune. But to be clear, this doesn't mean that there's a demon under every rock. Let me say it this way. Many things are just the result of what we have already said, the, the, the broken, cursed world. The choices of men and women uh, who do and say things that are evil and unjust. Not every cold is because the devil gave it to you. Not every flat tire or appliance gone bad is the physical devil tweaking those things. <laughs> But our worldview, on the other hand, should not exclude the direct, visible, tangible results of the enemy's interference. I just suspect it happens less likely than we're often attributing directly to the devil. 
But on the other hand, let's not swing so far as to not acknowledge that the devil has very real uh, uh, power here. He tempted Jesus by saying, look at all the kingdoms of the world. You bow down to me. I'll give you the power over them. There's a very real power exists in the world today. 1 John 5, 19. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the devil in control of the world systems until the kingdom is finally established. There is power. So let's, let's acknowledge, secondly, our, our trouble comes from the devil. And then thirdly, our flesh. And we don't like to talk about this very often, but our flesh can be maybe best described as the part of us that has continuity with this present evil age. It's ways its patterns, its practices, and its values. We might think of it as a, a weakness, a tendency to collapse to sin and selfishness. As Matthew shared with us last week, it's not evidence of a still present sinful nature, as in we are half good, half bad, that we still have an old sinful nature and a, and a righteous new nature mixed up together, a good wolf, a bad wolf inside. That is like horrible theology. The, church's, the largest share of the church still embraces it. That you're really, the reason you're, that you sin, that you're weak, that you're vulnerable, is because, well, you have a bad wolf living inside of you. That you have an old sinful nature that's still in there. Well, no, you don't. You have one new nature, but you have the flesh. You're accustomed to living in it because you're in it since you were born. And as a result, it has a tendency to identify with the ways of the world. But you have one new righteous nature, yet we remain vulnerable to temptation and sin. Now, these three sources of trouble and their consequent lack of peace are going to continue to exert their influence until the kingdom of God comes in fullness when Jesus returns at the end of this present evil age. And the Bible says that's when the old order of things will pass away. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He'll destroy the power of death, and he'll purge the world of suffering and pain as he sets everything to right the way it was supposed to be. Now, we don't need to be a theologian or a scholar or a Bible student or a philosopher. You don't have to have a college degree or, or, or even scroll social media to know that God's world is messed up, isn't it? We just get up, go to our everyday ordinary going to work or school or retired life, and we know that there's a lack of peace everywhere. It's into this human condition that Jesus promises us as his children to not just give us peace with God, but to give us the very peace of God, a radically settled heart through all of our ups and downs. Here's what Jesus promised us in John 14, 27. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give isn't like the peace that the world gives, so don't be troubled or afraid. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? Jesus gives us as a gift the peace of God. A heart or spirit or soul, depending on what 
what word you use to translate the, 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 the issue of the, the part of us that's a spiritual component and will continue to exist after we die. The peace of God is a heart or a spirit or a soul that is radically settled. It is not anxious or afraid. It's content. It's kind of like living in the eye of a hurricane. You can be swirling all around you, but in the center, you can be at peace. Jesus said his gift was not like the peace that the world gives. What what does a peace that the world gives look like? Well, it's a peace that's defined by the absence of problems and difficulties, right? It's negotiated with contracts and treaties and... and, uh, Feuding parties laying down their weapons and calling a truce. Jesus said, my peace isn't like that. It's a gift that God gives us of a radically settled heart and mind, regardless of our external circumstances, regardless of the world, the devil, and the flesh. It's a life that's not moved by fear and uncertainty, anxiety or worry or Uh, or um, the future, because it's trusting Jesus. It's a life, I like to think of it as a life of settled confidence. That we're at home in Jesus, regardless of, of the wind and waves around us. It's confident of what Jesus will do for us as we ask him to bring his kingdom into our lives and the lives of those that we love. The Apostle Paul described it on another occasion uh, to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Don't worry about anything. Really? Anything? (laughs) Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for what He's already done and then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing Jesus' gift of peace with God and the peace of God? Yeah, and you know, really, the truth be known, uh, friends, once you start looking through the lens of peace, you find living at peace all over the New Testament. It's to become a defining characteristic of God's children. Let let me just illustrate a, a, a few ways with you. We are encouraged by Jesus in the Beatitudes to be a peacemaker. He said, God blesses those who work for peace. They're called the children of God, Matthew 5, 9. The Apostle Paul begins nearly every one of his letters with this prayer. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Those weren't just flowery words that he used to introduce a letter, the kind of words that you you toss off as insignificant and insincere. He wanted Jesus to give you more grace and more peace. Paul and Peter urge us, do all you can to live in peace with everyone, Romans 12, 18. And search for peace and work to maintain it, 1 Peter 3, 1, uh, 3, 11. 
The writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 12, verse 14, work at living at peace with everyone. And of course, we know that the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our life, according to Galatians 5.22, love, joy, and peace. The fruit of the indwelling Spirit. So to be at peace with God, experiencing the peace of God, we will be, as the text in Ephesians 6 tells us, fully prepared. Fully prepared to meet every circumstance that we might face in life. Our feet will be prepared with the gospel of peace. The peace that comes from the good news will fully prepare us to meet every challenge, every circumstance. Now, perhaps the Holy Spirit is inviting some of us to look a little more closely at the shoes that we're wearing today. I could make a joke about how many pairs of shoes my wife has in her closet, but... I won't. (laughs) I love you, dear. And as we look at the shoes that we're wearing, are they shoes of peace? Are they shoes of peace with God and the peace of God that prepare us to face every circumstance? Maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting us to trust Jesus for an increased measure of peace of mind and heart. And let me just illustrate a few as I close. Maybe your issue is global. Some issue, concern, or struggle, or people group weighs heavy on your heart, and it's causing a measure of unrest or anxiety, a lack of peace. You react to the injustice of war or persecution or famine or the potable water crisis or child slavery or climate change or destruction of the planet or the over 100 million people in the world today who are displaced as refugees because of natural disaster, persecution, and war. And your heart is heavy. It, it, it causes you a, a lack of peace. You feel insignificant and, and, and powerless, and yet you're still very passionate, and so you might be anxious. Maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to declare over all of your global concerns that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and His peace can guard your heart and mind. Maybe your issue is more local. It's an issue of local concern. Maybe it's a struggle, uh, political, racial, religious, or uh, cultural lines. And, you know, good friends, family, colleagues, fellow church members... We, we all see and do life so differently, don't we? Uh, maybe others in, in your town, city, or village, or in your church, or your neighborhood, or your circle of friends, or acquaintances, or even your extended family, maybe they embrace values or they prioritize behaviors that are different from yours. And as a consequence, you get anxious and, 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 and uh, you find it difficult to be around them. You might even be just angry at the things they say or do or post on Facebook. Maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to declare over all your local concerns that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and His peace will guard your heart and mind as you trust Christ Jesus. Maybe your issue is more personal. And these these could be of many different uh, kinds. Sickness or aging, divorce, betrayal, 
uh, lifelong singleness, the fear of being kidnapped or your children uh, going missing or contracting a serious illness or being in an automobile accident or getting robbed or a thousand other things. Maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to declare over all of your personal worries and fears that Jesus is my Prince of Peace and his peace will guard my heart and mind as I live in Christ Jesus. Lastly, we might be struggling with some form of inner angst, a hurt, a hang-up, a habit, a loss, a loss of some kind, a dream, a business, a relationship, a physical capacity, the death of a loved one, betrayal, abandonment, dysfunctional upbringing, uh, abuse or violence in our past. Maybe uh, it's that we're battling a chemical or an alcohol or food addiction. We might be agoraphobic or bipolar, battling mental depression um, or uh, uh, dementia of some kind. The Holy Spirit might be inviting us to declare over all of our inner hurts and hang-ups and habits and losses that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and His peace will guard my heart and mind as I trust Jesus. Now this week, I just encourage us to spend some time praying and inviting the indwelling Holy Spirit to speak. We thank God that He's a communicating God and that He will speak to us. Perhaps He'll speak starting today as we, as we transition to, to worship in just a few moments. Uh, Maybe he'll speak to us through scriptures, through our daily devotion, a time of prayer, or listening to his inner voice. Perhaps he'll speak to you through a dream or a vision. You might hear his voice in a book you read, a movie you watch, or in the words of your children or your grandchildren. Perhaps you'll sense his presence or you'll hear his voice as you just sit quietly in front of the fireplace or with a lit candle, with a cup of coffee, or a cup of tea, or a glass of wine. Let's just trust the Holy Spirit to speak and then provide the power to change as we more fully trust Him to experience His gift of peace of mind and heart this week. Lord, we're just so thankful that You gave us these exceedingly great and precious promises. And we thank You, God, and where we are, are slipping short, Lord, of trusting you more fully on these global or local or personal or inner issues, we pray that this week your Holy Spirit would, would shine the light of insight and revelation into our heart, and then you would give us your grace and power to more fully trust you to be men and women who experience the peace of God in all of our circumstances, that you would prepare our feet, Lord, that no matter where we walk or where we go or what we do, that we would be settled at home in you.